Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, Would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Friday, February 10th, 2012. Suffering from a raging head cold. It's like one setback after another, man. Tuning in, you're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseboro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is a program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, at least when I'm healthy. Um, yeah, the goal of which is to help you think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. If you can't hear it in my voice, I can feel it for sure. I'm suffering from a raging head cold at the moment and uh, have made an executive decision. We're going to do a light edition today. I had every intention of doing a normal program. Unfortunately, my uh, my sinful carcass, uh, which is suffering from this head cold, is um, is not willing to go along for the ride today. So as a result of it, I'm going to uh, do our light edition. We're going to continue listening to the series of lectures put out by uh, Dr. Michael Horton uh, regarding the Great Commission. And uh, I think we're up to uh, lectures five and six today, and so I'm going to go ahead and play those today without commercial <laughs> interruption and without uh, anything at the end. I'm going to go crawl back into bed and try to ride this out so that I can uh, hit the ground running again on Monday. So if you uh, are prone to uh, say a prayer for uh, for me, uh, please do so. Pray that God would be merciful in uh, allowing me to uh, regain my health back. It's it's just a cold. It's not a big deal, but it's it's um it, uh, it's a nuisance, is what it is. So, uh, without any further ado, here is Doctor Michael Horton, uh, lectures number five and six on the Great Commission. Here we go. Let's open with a word of prayer. Our gracious Father, we thank you for giving us your word and spirit by. Uh, by these means, we not only know about uh, life, but we actually inherit everlasting life. And by this same word, uh, through this same spirit, we're able to bring this gospel, this good news, to the ends of the earth. We pray, Father, that you would help us to understand a little bit more, uh, even this morning, the significance of your commission, which you gave through your Son, Jesus Christ, and which continues to be the mandate for your church to the end of the age. For we pray in his name. Amen. 
Well, to summarize, as we're going through the uh, Great Commission that our Lord gave us, uh, let me summarize the last couple of weeks or the last few, few uh, times we have done this, stretching over a number of weeks. Uh, the first line of argument was based on the indicative announcement that Jesus gave at the beginning of the Great Commission, which is a place where, where we don't often start. When we hear the Great Commission, usually we hear, go therefore into all the world and preach the gospel. That's the banner of the missions conference. Uh, but actually, there's a sentence before it where Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go into all the world and preach the gospel. So we're not going out into the world to bring in the kingdom. We're not going out into the world to, to build an empire. We're not going out into the world to uh, bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Uh, we're going out to the world to announce that someone else has done all that. That, that someone else has uh, inaugurated the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of God in this present evil age. Someone else has uh, taken his battle station and has uh, routed the enemies of God. Someone else has driven the serpent out of heaven. And because of this, the kingdom is already here, but it is not fully consummated. And so we talked uh, uh, last week about the, the confusion that was in the air at the time of Jesus about what that kingdom would look like. And a lot of, a lot of uh, people in Jesus' day were looking for a kingdom that was very much like you would find in the book of Joshua, where uh, Israel would get really serious, you know, mean business with God, and rededicate itself. Uh, I mean, this time I really, 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 really surrender all. And uh, then there would be uh, uh, peace in the land because the Gentiles would be driven out. It would be holy war all over again like you've never seen. Joshua's cleansing was partial, but this cleansing of the land will be full, complete, and enduring. And then our sacrifices will be accepted. We'll run all of the uh, people with any kind of uh, physical abnormalities. Uh, because that's a sign of judgment. Uh, anybody with uh, any uh, uh, dispositions toward particular sins, even uh, you know, uh, 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 repentant people, former repentant, uh, repentant former prostitutes, and others, we're going to bar all of these people from the the, the precincts of the temple. Going to get all of this ready. Then Messiah will say, "Hey, it's good enough for me to come now and." And take care of this. And then we'll have the resurrection of the dead and everything. They were looking for all of this in one event. They were looking for the judgment, not only of the Gentiles. John the Baptist was looking for the judgment even within Israel that was coming, that was announced by the prophets. So he was much clearer than the rest of Jesus' contemporaries were about this business. But he was expecting it not only as one event... Everything that we're expecting in the second coming, he was expecting in the first coming. He saw it not only as one event, but one event in one phase. The kingdom of glory and power now. 
Whereas what Jesus actually ended up doing was opening up a fissure in history, a space. Between his two comings, where in the middle of history, which is where we are right now, in the middle of history, there would be a reprieve from judgment so that the gospel could go out to the ends of the earth and every family on earth would, uh, would be able to hear the gospel and become uh, a remnant from all the nations would become a part of the family of God. And so we're glad, we're delighted that John the Baptist was wrong and Jesus was right. We're delighted that the judgment, the last judgment, didn't occur in Jesus' ministry. We're delighted uh, that, that all of that holy war uh, business that was anticipated and merely foreshadowed in the, in the conquest of Canaan, the, the land, typological land of Canaan, uh, was, was postponed, if you will, until uh, the fullness of the elect come in. And so it is one event but in two phases, the kingdom of grace, which is already here, and the kingdom of glory, which is not here yet. The kingdom is present, but not in its consummated, glorious uh, form. We don't have uh, ultimate peace, love, and justice ruling in the world. But we do see Christ lifted up and exalted, ruling at the Father's right hand, until all of his enemies are made his footstool. We do see churches springing up all around the world where the gospel is truly preached, the sacraments are rightly administered, and there is church discipline. In these ways, Christ's ministry as prophet, priest, and king continue in the church as Christ himself exercises that ministry by his spirit through his uh, word. The signs of the kingdom that we've talked about over the last several weeks are that the blind see, the poor, hear, uh, uh, the deaf hear, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. John's, John, remember, comes back and he says, uh, or he, he's actually, he doesn't come back from anywhere. He's in prison, about to be beheaded, and he sends out his disciples to Jesus saying, Are you the one? I am not seeing everything that I was expecting. Uh, are you the one, or should we wait for another? Have we... Have we uh, put our hopes on the wrong Messiah? And Jesus says, go back and tell John what you see in here. The deaf hear, the blind see, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is the one who isn't offended on my account. And so his, this is his mission. This is, this is what it means for the Messiah to come. Uh, it is not the end of the world. It is not the end of history. This is not Judgment Day. This is Forgiveness Day. This is uh, announcing the gospel to the ends of the earth and uh, welcoming uh, sinners to the feast. Demons are subject to the disciples in Jesus' name. Jesus said, if I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom has come. And that's what he was doing. So he was basically saying, then this is proof that the kingdom is here. His own disciples said, we, we, we can't believe it. Even the demons are subject to us in your name. And Jesus said, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. The, the, the real turning point was not, November, was not September 11th uh, uh, 
when the uh, Twin Towers were destroyed, as significant as that was, that wasn't a turning point. Uh, September 11th didn't change everything. AD 33 changed everything. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the event that, that, that was a turn, the turning point in human history from this present evil age to the, to the dawn of the age to come. As the age to come is now breaking in upon us. Satan is bound, Jesus said as much. Before you loot somebody's house, you've got to tie the strong man up. Not, he's not giving principles of robbery. Uh, what he's saying there is, is that, first of all, I've got to tie Satan up, and then, then I can loot his house. So what are we doing since Jesus left? We're looting his house. He tied him up. We're looting his house. We're going in and opening up the prison doors, unlocking the gates, and letting everybody out. Isn't it wonderful to have a great commission where he's done all the heavy lifting and all we have to do is he's given us the keys and we just just go unlock the gates and let people out. Another sign of the kingdom is the forgiveness of sins. More than anything else, this is a sign of the kingdom and this is what gets Jesus put on a cross because he bypasses the temple and offers forgiveness directly in his in his own person. And they say, who does he think he is? This is blasphemy. He can't forgive. No one can forgive sins but God alone. And Jesus says, "Uh (laughs) uh-huh. Yeah, he's granting forgiveness directly in his name and welcoming outcasts for the feast. He is calling the outcasts not only to the feast but into that Sabbath rest. Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. This is just after Jesus has proclaimed himself Lord of the Sabbath. Why do your disciples pick grain on the Sabbath? And he says, well, he says, uh, 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 Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. Sabbath wasn't, uh, man wasn't made for the Sabbath. Sabbath was made for man. And I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. Uh, can you uh, again? If if we were only Jews, we would get how incendiary that was. Uh, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. Uh, I tell the Sabbath where to go <laughs> and what to do. I created the Sabbath. Um, and then he says, "Come unto me." Not come unto the Sabbath, but come unto me. I am the Sabbath. All you who are weary and burdened under, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. For my, uh, 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 my burden is, is easy and my yoke is light. And you will find rest for your souls. We also saw that the gospel of the kingdom is... Synonymous with the keys of the kingdom. That is how the the kingdom progresses, by opening these doors and closing them. That's why uh, Jesus told Peter and the other apostles, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And the way Reformed, as other traditions uh, interpret this, is say that uh, Jesus Christ through his ambassadors, his delegated representatives, 
is personally binding people under God's judgment through the preaching of the law and absolving them by the preaching of the gospel. That this is being announced through the mere ministry of fallen, sinful human beings. And so uh, Calvin, for example, observes that in its present phase, the kingdom is the gospel and the gospel is the kingdom. The means is his gospel, and that is why Jesus Christ spoke so often of the gospel, calling it the kingdom of God. The gospel of the kingdom can also be translated the gospel which is the kingdom. It is not then without cause that the gospel is called the kingdom of God. Jesus Christ always has some company wherever the gospel is preached, for he is not a king without his subjects. Isn't that marvelous? And that, that, that's true. Uh, lexically, uh, the, kingdom of, uh, the gospel of the kingdom could be also translated the gospel which is the kingdom. In other words, you don't have a kingdom of Christ that does certain things and preaching the gospel is one of them. The kingdom is the gospel. The gospel is the kingdom. The proclamation of this gospel It's not only what the kingdom does, it's what the kingdom is. It constitutes the kingdom. That means the same gospel that we hear every week, it, it not only brings us into the church and creates the church in the beginning, but sustains the church throughout its pilgrimage. You don't have the gospel that gets people saved and plants a church, and then something else that... that that keeps the church going or keeps the Christian going. The gospel always is that which uh, creates and sustains our life together as the citizens of this marvelous kingdom. And so with all of that as as background, let me uh, very quickly um, uh, turn our attention now to the urgent imperative. If If we've heard the indicative, Clearly enough, we will be freed from a, a burden to create the kingdom uh, or to, to bring the kingdom into existence, but will rather, as Hebrews uh, 12 says, uh, gratefully receive a kingdom. That's not just true of non-Christians out there to whom we're bringing the gospel. That's true of us every Sunday when we gather here. We're, we're gathering as those who are receiving a kingdom not as those who are building a kingdom. But because that's true, we can be given an imperative that we can actually fulfill, namely to go, therefore, into all the world and preach the gospel. Now, this used to be taken for granted as something that was very uh, crucial to what it meant to be a a Christian. Uh, You know, Having missionaries was very much a part at the, at the heart of life for many of us growing up in evangelical uh, Christianity. It was easy for us to think of the the uh, the infidel, you know, the unbelievers out there, because we live in America. Uh, you know, here. It, 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 we, we can sort of deflect unbelief to those outside 
the enemy far away or those to whom we need to, to send the gospel, when we think of all those people around us, especially in our culture, who are vociferous critics of Christianity, uh, who are hardened secularists, or who are militant in another religion, and the tendency is either to become more militant ourselves or to get rid of that martial language altogether. You don't hear a lot about uh, uh, onward Christian soldiers. And I can understand why in a 9-11 world we kind of tone down some of that rhetoric. Uh, I, uh, uh, you know, Christians uh, who have had to explain over the last uh, decade why uh, uh, Campus Crusade for Christ isn't a terrorist organization uh, are, are understandably not very uh, thrilled with the language, uh, military language, that non-Christians can't necessarily interpret the way Christians intended. It's very easy when you hear about the Crusades or, uh, you know, we're, we're on a crusade for this or a crusade for that. Uh, Muslims tend to hear that especially a little differently than the rest of the country. Uh, but now you have secularists, too, who hear it that way, that religion has become so militarized, generally, that martial imagery is something we have to, have to give up. The word missionary sounds antiquated, uh, and to some people, arrogant or even violent. Why would you want to impose your religion on people who are very happy being whatever they are and whatever they've been raised with. Of course, this assumes that religion is therapy. Religion is just is part of, uh, you know, what, what colors, the favorite colors that that nation has. Um, what are its favorite symbols? What are its favorite songs? And then what is its favorite religion? It's just part of the cultural identity. It's not about ultimate truth. It's just a, a, a question of preserving local cultures. And uh, idolatry, pulling down idolatry is really uh, imperialism. You're, you're, you, know, you, call it, you call it destroying idolatry, people converting, becoming Christians, and uh, you want them to leave their idols behind well, we call it a, a destruction of the fabric of local culture. And we hear that more and more, uh, that it's cultural imperialism. When it's not cultural imperialism uh, to, to, to go and proclaim a gospel that even your own culture doesn't embrace. Um, evangelism is another word that's very difficult to uh, uh, to get out these days. And so what, what people are doing now in a lot of Christian circles is saying, let's just live the gospel. There, there's been so much hypocrisy. There's been so much violence. There's been so much harsh talk. Can't turn on the radio or the television without hearing people yelling at each other. And the same is true with religion. You know, people just, uh, when it comes to propositions and arguing over truth, 
people just, uh, you know, uh, nearly take up arms against each other. So let's just forget about all of that. Every time you have a, 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 a Christian leader who's confident about his positions, he seems to uh, you know, be caught with his hand in the till or worse. And so let's just, let, let's just live the gospel. Now, I can understand the humility there, that, or, or, or what appears to be humility, at least at first. It says, maybe we're in no position to tell the world how to live. But they are actually telling the world how to live when they say, let's just live the gospel and not proclaim the gospel. They're still saying, let our lives be the gospel instead of let us point away from ourselves to Jesus Christ, who is the gospel. And so that's, the, the danger in doing this is that we no longer actually present the gospel as it's given to us in the scriptures. First of all, the gospel is not something you can live. It's only something you can proclaim because it's about somebody else. The gospel's not about you. It's for you, but it's not about you. And that's the first point. It's just a category confusion to say live the gospel, follow the gospel. You can't follow the, the gospel. You can't, you can't, you, you, you can't uh, follow an announcement. You can only hear and receive and believe an announcement. We follow the law. We obey God's commands. But the gospel is not an imperative, a command. The gospel is an indicative. An announcement. And that means that, that we, we can't turn from creeds to deeds. We can't, we can't say, uh, we're going to take the deeds over the creeds. There was a time when we needed the creeds, but now we, now we need to focus on, on the deeds. Because no matter how good the deeds are, Mormons have pretty good deeds. Uh, the Nation of Islam has... has really done a, an awful lot with drug addicts in Chicago, New York, and elsewhere, putting them, uh, putting them in a situation where they're, where they're responsible young men. The Nation of Islam has been remarkably, much more successful than, than uh, Christian churches have been in that regard. Uh, and we're always going to give reason for cynical unbelievers to point and laugh and say he said that he would uh, live the gospel and look at his life. But the only hope that we have really is to point away from ourselves because our gospel is not about us. It is not, it is not privatized. And that's, that's where religion is for most people today. It's a private matter. It's not public truth. It's, it's, it's private usefulness. And that's where religion belongs. But we are proclaiming, and this is what got the early Christians in trouble, we're proclaiming that Jesus was raised again on the third day in human history, that it's just as historical as Alexander the Great conquering most of Asia. It's a public event. It's a public claim to public truth. And this is why the early Christians were martyred. The early Christians were not martyred because they were trying to live the gospel. The early Christians were not martyred because they were feeding the poor. Well, they were. Actually, Pliny the Younger, 
governor of Bithynia, said, that's the one thing they do that we like. Uh, But the reason that they were uh, dipped in wax up to their necks and then set a flame in Nero's garden uh, for his parties and then thrown to lions and other things was because the idle trades were drying up and the labor unions were getting angry and they wouldn't acknowledge that Caesar was Lord. This Christos could have whatever he wanted of heaven, who cares? But Caesar's the Lord of earth. And they said, no, actually, he's the Lord of heaven and earth. Uh, okay, well, he can have the soul, but I have the bodies. No, actually, he's the creator and redeemer of our souls and our bodies, our only comfort in life and in death, in, our bo- in body as well as soul, uh, uh, life and in death. And this is why we're told again and again and again in the secular annals, the secular records of Christian persecution, not just the New Testament, that they they were killed, they were executed for their recalcitrance in not renouncing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. That's what they had to do, renounce his name. Saul... Paul, before he was Paul, before his conversion, said that he was persecuting Christians for the sake of the name. And then in Acts, he is accused, of, uh, uh, he is persecuted for the name. And what that means is proclaiming Christ alone as the only name in heaven and on earth by which we can be saved. In other words, the Christians went to their deaths not for saying Jesus is helpful, not because they said that our marriages are better and we're happier people and are more be- living more balanced, carefree lives. Uh, not because our portfolios are uh, more promising, but because Jesus of Nazareth is the only name in heaven or on earth by which human beings can be saved. And this is demonstrated with adequate proof by the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. That is why they were persecuted. That is why the church was uh, a battlefield. Even though they didn't take up physical arms to defend themselves, it was definitely a battlefield. And that's that's why Paul says, we wrestle not with flesh and blood. We wrestle not as a church. Now we may as citizens and whatever. As a church, we wrestle not with ballots. We wrestle not with parties. We wrestle not with, uh, uh, with, with, with uh, uh, rival factions and armies and troops and so forth. We wrestle with the demonic hosts that want to keep those doors shut. Don't want to let any of the people out whom Christ has bought at the price of his own blood. That's what we're wrestling against so that Paul says... The only weapons that we have are the Word, the Gospel, the Spirit, and the external righteousness of Jesus Christ as our breastplate and the belt of truth. This is all that we have. And by the way, pray for me in the midst of my suffering, what, that I might suffer less or that I might occasionally get a cake? 
No. That I, and when you pray for me in prison, pray this. Pray that I will have even greater boldness to proclaim the gospel wherever I am. See, that's what it's all about. That's what spiritual warfare is all about. And we hear a lot about the devil and spiritual war and spiritual battle and, and, and so forth. But how often is it tethered to whether the gospel is or isn't being preached? That's the question. The question in any moment is not ultimately, as serious as it is, as important as it is for the great commandment of loving our neighbor, how many abortions are taking place. As serious as that is, that is not the most fundamental basic question. It's never how big are our churches and how influential are we in our government. It's never what's the crime rate and how do we compare with other nations. It's never ultimately what the government is or is not doing with our money. The question for the church ultimately is, is the gospel being truly and faithfully preached to all nations at this moment? That's the question. That's the question by which the church lives or shrivels up and dies. It turns on that question. The mission statement that Jesus delivered to his church is an urgent imperative to proclaim the gospel to everyone, to make disciples of all nations. From the beginning, Christianity has been a missionary faith. From Jerusalem to the diaspora Jews, those scattered outside of Palestine, all the way out to to Spain. You think of the the book of Acts is, is basically Paul's story of making it all the way to Rome before he's executed. That was his his goal. All those other times he didn't want to get ex- be executed because he hadn't made it to Rome with the gospel yet. He makes it to Rome with the gospel and it's kind of like that's a good way to go. <laughs> I mean, that's that's the it's sort of the great commission embodied right there, not the gospel embodied, that's Jesus, but the great commission embodied is Paul standing in Rome saying, whew, I made it. Jesus Christ died for your sins, rose for your justification, believe this message, all sinners are welcome at his table, come and and repent and believe. Now you can kill me. (laughs) I've delivered this. I've gone from the... the, uh, 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 the city of God, Jerusalem, now to the capital of the city of man, Rome. And I can die. It's gone from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the uttermost parts of the earth, which for Paul was the uttermost parts of the earth. When he went to Spain, he thought that you know he was in New Guinea. Uh, that was just at the very edges of the earth as far as Paul was concerned. Christianity has been a missionary faith from the beginning for that reason. Because Jesus says in this phase of the church's ministry, this is what the church is for. The church is an embassy on earth of Jesus Christ in his heavenly kingdom. 
And embassies aren't there for state dinners and sandwiches, cucumber sandwiches on the lawn uh, with business leaders in, in town. It, the embassy of grace is, is a, an official, notarized, authorized ministry of heaven on earth for actually making as many su- subjects of Satan in the world subjects of Christ. So we're, we're going behind all of the embassies of the earth and doing something here that is actually creating an international embassy. It's something that is actually not of this world, but it is in this world. And it's a marvelous thing in the Lord's eyes. And the, the danger here is this, is this is subverted on one hand by a militarism that says uh, that over-identifies the kingdoms of this world with the kingdom of Christ, uh, prematurely announcing that the kingdoms of this world have become his kingdom, or on the other hand, by, uh, by, by uh, uh, backing away so much from that error that we don't even have the courage to proclaim the gospel anymore. Because that would be too incendiary in our culture today. Those are the two, the two uh, edges of the envelope we have to, or the, the, the two... The, the two uh, dangers that we have to avoid as we talk about the Great Commission in our day. And so next time, we're going to talk about the mission statement, uh, its original recipients, and what, at, at its heart, the Great Commission really means for us today. Well, the uh, Reformation was also a great moment in the history of missions. And as you know, we're going through the Great Commission here in uh, adult uh, Sunday school. And uh, it, it, it's uh, worth mentioning that the Reformation, though it isn't often spoken of uh, as a uh, major event in the history of missions, uh, actually was uh, significant for the transformation of Europe from a moribund Christianity, uh, distorted, deeply confused and superstitious Christianity, uh, to one of the most well-catechized and evangelized parts of the world in the whole history of that continent. It was a, it was a more thorough reformation, uh, even just thinking in terms of, of, uh, of Christianity across the board without thinking of the theological differences between Roman Catholics and Protestants a more thorough Christianization of, uh, of much of Europe than had ever been accomplished in the whole era of Christendom. So, really remarkable gains. And the first missionaries were sent, uh, first Protestant missionaries in the Western Hemisphere were sent from uh, Calvin's church there in Geneva to Brazil. And when, when, uh, when they were killed, he sent another group back. He says, that's sort of how we do things here. You know, he was used to France, you know, hardly ever graduate a, a minister who, uh, who isn't martyred. Uh, so why should that be any different from missionaries going over to Brazil? They, they trained uh, uh, about 60% of the graduates of the Geneva Academy were missionaries. So there's always been a huge, from, from that point even to the present day, uh, missions has been very much at the heart of 
uh, the Reformed tradition. And the mission statement that we have is to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. On the basis of that great announcement that I spent several weeks on, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, on the basis of that great announcement, uh, the church is called to bring this good news that, that created the church itself to the rest of the world. So that it's the gift that keeps on giving. It keeps being unpacked and it keeps expanding. And this call is wide in its breadth to all nations and deep in its intensiveness. Make disciples, not just make converts. It's deep and wide. And that's what I want to focus on here uh, with this urgent imperative. Go, therefore. Uh, Mark's version of the Great Commission reads, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And so clearly the imperative is urgent. Uh, it, it is, it is uh, not something that we can mess around with. It's not something that we can get around to if the uh, church doesn't have anything else going on. This is an urgent command to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. In fact, Jesus said, this gospel will be preached to the ends of the earth and then the end will come. So the only reason the end has not yet come is because the Great Commission isn't finished. And when it is, the end will come. Now that doesn't mean that the only thing that matters until Christ returns is the Great Commission. We go on about our, our uh, Great Commandment uh, uh, callings. Loving our neighbors, caring for our families, uh, enjoying our callings, enjoying our neighbors, and, and uh, uh, enjoying marriage and, and love and so forth. But at the, at the end of the day, the, the clock is ticking down insofar as the mission that Christ has instituted is being fulfilled. And when that mission is finished, when the fullness of the Gentiles have been brought in and the fullness of the Jews have been brought in, the end will come. And we've also talked about the difference between the extraordinary ministry of the apostles and the ordinary ministry of the ministers and elders uh, who not only plant churches, but uh, grow churches by that same gospel that brought that church into being in the first place. There's too much of a cleavage between the mission field and ordinary churches. Whether, whether a church is 800 years old in the middle of London uh, or eight years old uh, in Nairobi, they, are, they are, are brought into being and sustained in existence, whether for eight years or 800 years, sustained in existence by that same gospel. Now, one of the things that, that, that becomes a wrench thrown into this these days is religious pluralism. There are all sorts of uh, reasons why missions uh, has become uh, a less central concern in the churches today. One reason is that Missions now has become anything and everything, just like the gospel. Gospel has become uh, that 
that elastic idea that can house just about anything. Anything nice in the Bible is the gospel. Or anything that the church likes, anything that the church thinks is, is beautiful, true, and good is the gospel. And uh, it's the same with the, the Great Commission. Anything the church thinks that is good for Christians to do becomes the, the mission of the church. But that just isn't the case. The church is called to do a few things. Christians are called to do lots of things. Christians are called to do lots of things churches are not called to do. Christians are called to be good parents. Uh, 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 churches have no commission to raise children. Uh, Christians are called to vote and be active, uh, actively engaged in their society as, uh, as citizens. The church has no commission or mandate uh, or authorization to make any political pronouncements. Christians do a lot that churches don't do and churches shouldn't do. This commission is very narrow and it's very specific. Go into all the world and make disciples of everyone by preaching the gospel, baptizing, and teaching them everything that I have commanded. Just do that. <laughs> Jesus is saying, do that, please. Just do that. Peter, do you love me? Yes, I love you. Feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Yes, I love you. Feed my lambs. Peter, do you love me? Yes, I love you. Feed my sheep. Yeah, I got it. I got it. <laughs> And then you come to 1 Peter where he says, uh, he calls the, the under-shepherds to feed Christ's flock. He got it. And you know, we need to get it. That is very, it's a very specific thing. It's the hardest thing. It's a very hard job. But it's, it's a small job description. It's a hard job description, but it's a narrow job description that Christ has given to his church in this time between the times. But 70% of American adults endorse the statement now, according to a 2008 Pew Forum uh, poll. 70% of American adults endorse the statement, many religions can lead to eternal life. And more than half, 57% of the of professing uh, uh, Protestant evangelicals agreed. 57% of those who say they, go reg they regularly attend an evangelical Protestant church said that there are many religions that lead to eternal life. And this is not only a growing trend among Western Christians. There's a, a huge movement right now of, uh, it's called the insider movement, a uh, movement in uh, especially Muslim countries where where people say, I will become a follower of Jesus, but I won't be baptized. I will remain a Muslim, but I will be a follower of Jesus. And this is a growing movement in the Islamic world right now. And there's a lot of debate, and I'm just, just sort of stepping into that debate in conversations with uh, friends who know a lot more about it on both sides. It can get pretty heated, and it's like, piranhas uh, right now. You would think, you know, maybe 50 years ago, evangelicals would have said, no, you have to be baptized. You have to uh, deny, deny me before men, I'll deny you before my father. Uh, you know, you, you have to confess Christ before uh, the world. And, 
yes, of course, baptism could could uh, seal your your martyrdom. And and uh, I, I don't know. How, I don't know personally uh, what kind of uh, difficulty uh, that would be, but uh, but that's what's called for. I think most evangelicals 50 years ago would have probably uh, seen that as a requirement, but not anymore. Now it seems to be the, the wind is in the sails of the view that you don't have to be an explicit follower of Jesus Christ to be saved. You don't have to be baptized. And see, this is the, this is the personal relationship with Jesus run amok. This is... You, uh, this is uh, I'm asking you to have a personal relationship with Jesus, not to join a church gone crazy. That contrast between an external religion and an internal religion. That's what we're looking at here, uh, where people can actually be... This was the ancient Gnostic heresy. The ancient Gnostics said, we can even engage in, in service to the, to the pagan gods and the emperor bodily... Be, because our spirits are still pure. And so we can do whatever we want outwardly, externally, physically with our bodies, as long as our hearts, our spirits are not engaged in the practice. There's something similar here. It doesn't really matter if you externally identify yourself as a Christian, as long as your heart is there with the Lord. And that's what this insider movement is saying. Or you hear people... That you know, Glenn Beck must be a, a Bible-believing, born-again evangelical. He says, no, I'm, I'm a Mormon. Let me be a Mormon. I am a Mormon. No, he, no you're, you're an evangelical. Every, it's amazing. Uh, everywhere I go these days, people are talking about Glenn Beck as a great evangelical leader. Uh, maybe that's what evangelicalism has become. You know, indistinguishable from Mormonism. Uh, a political movement, a social movement. If that's the case, then maybe maybe that's true. But uh, my my point is, on the right and on the left, the idea that that identifying with a particular a particular creed concerning Jesus of Nazareth is necessary has been put on the back burner. In a whole host of different ways, there's been a lot of pressure to define the faith by someone other than Jesus Christ. More than one quarter of American adults, 28%, have left the faith in which they were raised in favor of another religion, a whole other religion. This is in America. One, more than one quarter of Americans are not now in the same religion that they were raised in. And so this is musical chairs. People are, are switching their religions like their clothes. Uh, it is, it's it's uh, not at all the case that you can assume that the faith is handed down from one generation to another generation. And that's not all bad because it can be handed down simply uh, like, uh, like clothes are handed down, which is no better than being changed uh, every day like clothes. But in recent years, different views on the destiny of the unevangelized have been motivated by some of these factors. And here are the three views. The first view is pluralism. 
religious pluralism. And this view says that all religions all religions lead to the same destiny, basically. All paths lead to God. This is, this is that view that, uh, according to that Pew study, uh, 70% of the American adults and 57% of evangelicals affirm. Uh, inclusivism is a mediating view. Inclusivists say... Jesus Christ is the only way of salvation, but you do not have to believe in Jesus Christ to be saved. In other words, it's solo Christo, but not solo fide. Uh, you don't, uh, there's no one who goes to heaven uh, apart from Christ. Christ is the only basis for anyone being saved, but you don't have to believe in Christ to be justified. And this has become a very prominent belief, conviction, in the evangelical world today. And this is also the view that, that most mainline Protestants would hold to as well, including mainline Reformed and Presbyterian. Pluralism, inclusivism, and here is that ugly word, terrible, horrible, horrible, evil, mean people called exclusivists. Now, you can, you can tell that we didn't invent these terms. Uh, you know, the nice and mean, they could just as easily be here. Um, I don't like these terms at all, mainly because when God the Father from all of eternity commits his son and his son freely, voluntarily takes it up, commits his son to becoming flesh so he can be spit upon and have his beard pulled out and be put up on a cross and bleed and die for sinners so that all who look to Christ can be saved, that that could be called exclusivist. That's, it borders on sacrilege to call that an exclusive position. There is no name under heaven by which men can be saved other than Jesus Christ. That's not exclusivist. That is inclusivist. That is the most richly inclusivist gospel you could possibly imagine, that no matter what you have done, no matter who you are, no matter what nation you come from, no, no matter what tongue you speak, the, 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 the door is open, is wide open. Whosoever will, let him come. That is an inclusive message. And yet, of course, uh, we believe that one day the ark's door will close and all who have trusted in Christ will be saved and those who have not embraced Christ will be drowned in the deluge of God's wrath. We believe that because that's what the scriptures teach. It is Jesus who taught this view described as exclusivism more than anyone else in the entire Bible. Jesus speaks of hell and salvation through his name only in more vivid and in clearer terms uh, at greater length than any prophet or apostle uh, in Scripture. 
In any case, the emergent movement seems largely committed to inclusivism. The emergent movement, a movement of the last uh, 15 years to uh, sort of reinvent church, and Brian McLaren being one of those leaders, his latest book, A New Kind of Christianity, uh, uh, is one of the manifestos of this movement. The chief reason McLaren prefers the term missional, we need to be missional, not missionary, he says, is that, quote, it gets us beyond the us-them thinking and in-grouping and out-grouping that leads to prejudice, exclusion, and ultimately to religious wars. He says, it opens up a third alternative beyond exclusive and universalist religion. Exclusive religion says, we're in, you're out. Good news for us, bad news for you. Understandably, universalist religion reacts and says, everybody's in, but this can lead to magnanimous apathy. McLaren writes, missional Christian faith asserts that Jesus did not come to make some people saved and other people condemned. Jesus did not come to help some people be right while leaving everyone else to be wrong. Jesus did not come to create another exclusive religion, Judaism having, Judaism having been exclusivist based on genetics, and Christianity being exclusive based on belief, which can be a tougher requirement than genetics. Missional faith asserts that Jesus came to preach the good news of the kingdom of God to everyone, especially to the poor. But what about heaven and hell, you ask? Is everybody in? My reply, why do you consider me qualified to make this pronouncement? Actually, we didn't. We just thought you claimed to know the Bible. Uh, Isn't this God's business? Isn't it clear that I do not believe this is the right question for a missional Christian to ask? Can't we talk for a while about overthrowing and undermining every hellish stronghold in our lives and in our world? In other words, doing the gospel, as he often says, the the political and social work that we need to do? More important to me than the hell question is the mission question. But see, in Jesus' teaching... The hell question was inseparable from the mission question because he said it was for this purpose, namely going to the cross, that I have come into the world. He didn't say it was for this. It, it was mainly for the purpose of uh, making, making sure that uh, Jerusalem got back to the Lord and we got everything straightened out with the, the economics and, and the politics of the region and we eliminated war and so forth. No, Jesus spoke of his death on the cross as the very reason for his entrance into time and space. As I say, the most vivid and lengthy descriptions of hell come from the lips of our Lord himself, from Matthew 5.30. You want to look at some of these later. Matthew 8, verses 10 through 12, and 13, verses 40 to 42 verses 49 and 50, or Matthew 22, verse 13, 24, verse 51, 25, verse 30. And that's not even including the parallel passages in the Synoptic Gospels. Uh, There is a lot in there from the lips of our Lord himself about hell. For now, wheat and weeds grow together, but the era of God's patience will come to an end, and... 
then judgment will come. From the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he was announced as the judge who baptizes with the Spirit and also with fire. Matthew 3:11 and 12. Jesus explains, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. The nations will appear before the Son of Man, and all will be separated as sheep and goats into eternal life and into eternal punishment. The epistles reveal the same solemn expectation. God isn't ignorant uh, or unconcerned about human rebellion, we read, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed, Romans 2.5. For the wicked and unbelieving, there will be wrath and fury, anguish and distress, Romans 2, 8 and 9. Or 1 Thessalonians 5. The day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, just when everyone is proclaiming peace and security. Uh, it, will, it will be final as well as sudden. When the Lord Jesus, we read, is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and on those uh, uh, in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that great day to be glorified by his saints and to be marveled at among those who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. Tough words. (laughs) Uh, Jude tells us that Sodom and Gomorrah serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire serves us as an example of what is, is coming. False teachers, uh, Jude says, are wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. And Peter warns of the day of judgment and destruction of all the ungodly, 2 Peter 3.7. In Revelation, they're calling to the rocks to fall on them to save them from having to appear before the wrath of the Lamb. There's something... There's something worse than being crushed by falling rocks, and that is the face of the Lamb in his judgment on that day. The the bowls of wrath. It's hard to read the book of Revelation uh, without a strong stomach. You know, uh, this is... is, uh, From Genesis to Revelation, the reality of God's holiness, the reality of God's judgment is something that cannot be taken lightly. Uh, As Larry Hurtado, University of Edinburgh uh, New Testament scholar, says, there is no analogy in the Christian faith, no analogy in the ancient world of which the Christian church was a part, uh, either in Second Temple Judaism or the uh, Roman religion of the first century, that is as exclusive as Christianity. A Roman citizen could hold any number of views in religion. That was fine, as long as the civil religion was upheld. Hurtado writes, however, unlike nearly all of the other religious options of the time, 
but directly reflecting the Roman-era Jewish tradition in which it emerged, earliest Christian faith involved an exclusive religious claim upon its adherents. In all the earliest sources, the Christian message was about the one God of biblical tradition, and all other purported deities were regarded as mere idols or worse. End quote. That's the earliest Christianity. This is not a lately, in, lately invented exclusivism. This is exactly why Christians went to the lions. This is exactly why Christians have never been good social glue. Because there is an announcement that divides not between races and nations, but be, divides races and nations across the board, even families, over the confession, Jesus is Lord. And Deuteronomy 29.29 reminds us that the secret things belong to the Lord. We don't know, we don't know what happens in every case. This is the problem with the, the inclusivist interpretation, in my view. They speculate where God has not spoken, and they speak, uh, or they, they, they fail to speak where God has clearly spoken. So, for instance, uh, McLaren says we're not going to adjudicate the whole hell question. There's a lot of passages about that. Uh, yet, he's fairly clear that you don't have to believe in Jesus Christ in order, to be, in order to be saved. Look at examples like the noble pagans that you find in the Bible, like Job and Melchizedek. What do you do about those uh, uh, with those examples? And, and increasingly, in evangelical circles, this is what we're hearing. What about, what about all of those good people the Bible talks about who were not part of the covenant community? And uh, that's what we're going to talk about uh, uh, next time. How do we answer that question that people raise about... Uh, you know, if, if, if faith comes only, if salvation comes only through faith in Jesus Christ, how could Old Testament saints have been saved, much less people who were not part of the Israelite community? That's what we'll turn to next time. I think we have time for maybe two questions. I, I I don't know. I uh, I'm I'm reticent to question people's motives. I think that people really do believe that uh, the most important thing is that a person under that a person says yes to Jesus, whatever that means. And I think that if you're if if you're refusing to be baptized or to publicly identify with Christ you haven't really understood what it means to say yes to Jesus. Uh, 
But I think that there's a really minimalist kind of pray this prayer after me, repeat these words after me, now you're eternally secure. That kind of a minimalist gospel that is uh, behind this, hey, look, whatever you have to do to get the greatest number of people to say that prayer. Get as many people in heaven as you possibly can. I think that's part of, that's part of the mo- motivation or real concern. It's bad theology, but good motives. You know, best of motives, just really bad theology. That's, that is driving it. Um, had some conversations with theologians who are on this side of it, on uh, uh, defending the insider movement. Um, they, I have a little more trouble with them. <laughs> Because I, I do wonder what the sometimes what the motives are there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, great question. There, there are uh, certain voices uh, in, in evangelical circles uh, calling for less of a clarity about the difference between Roman Catholic and Protestant uh, views, for instance, when it comes to defending mere Christianity. Uh, that is definitely a part, uh, a part of this. See, the, in the Roman Catholic view, especially after Vatican II, this is, this is the view. You're all Roman Catholics. Uh, you didn't know that, probably, but it's true. You all belong to the Roman Catholic Church if, through no fault of your own, you're Reformed. Uh, if it's not your fault, you know, you, you, you've just been duped. The, the, uh, there are these concentric circles of salvation, and it just goes out to wider and wider concentric circles, but you're all a part of the church. Atheists are part of the church because they show by their good deeds that grace is at work even in their, their hearts. Uh, certainly, the Abrahamic faith traditions, Christianity, Islam, Judaism, right there. Uh, and uh, so they're closer to the light but it's, the view is you just move further and further from the light, but everybody is in the light a little bit. And whereas we say, no, there's a difference between special revelation, where the light is either on or off, and it's about the gospel. There is no gospel in the Grand Canyon, uh, no gospel in the stars, uh, and natural revelation. Yeah, there is... There is natural revelation that everybody knows, but the gospel is not known uh, in, uh, in this general way. Um, I think that there is, uh, it, it's very easy for Roman Catholics, therefore, to say, we believe that we're involved in the same mission, along with you guys. And it sounds nice, it sounds helpful, and 
and we're working together. It's really not we're working together. It's even if you don't know it, you're working for us. <laughs> unless, unless you really know what you're rejecting. So the worst thing you could possibly be is an ex-Catholic who has actually turned your back on it in an informed way. That's, that's, and for all of us in the Reformed tradition, that's what we, that we, you know, the whole tradition is ex-Catholic, <laughs> ex-Roman Catholic. Um, and so even, I think there's a tendency, if, look, if you, if you live in an evangelical world where, uh, where justification by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone is no longer understood or embraced, what's the point? We're all pro-life. We're all, you know, we have lots of similar Judeo-Christian values and so forth. Let's just all uh, let the walls come down. Um, and so I think that really uh, it all depends on what we think the gospel is. But yeah, I think there is a real tendency today to say wherever there are gains, even if there are, well, the, the evangelicals and Catholics together statement. Uh, says that we will stop proselytizing each other, uh, people in, in, each, in each other's countries. Um, I, I mean, I know missionaries, you know, you, would, you do too. Missionaries have been laboring their whole lives in predominantly Roman Catholic countries uh, where, where the majority of people they've led to Christ have been engaged in, in gross idolatry and superstition that even a Roman Catholic would have to acknowledge is gross idolatry and superstition, but it's worse for them to become a Presbyterian or Reformed Christian, and they're harassed, even physically, uh, down to the present day. And then the Evangelicals and Catholics Together statement says, really our differences aren't serious enough to warrant all that. So, Reformation's still going. <laughs> it's still... Uh, Still needed, and it reminds us that the whole purpose, really, of Reformation in any generation is mission. It's not to get our doctrine straight so we can have our doctrine straight and know what we would say to a Christian, if, a non-Christian, if we ever talk to one. Uh, it is, it is to have something to say, a reason for the hope that we have when anyone asks of us. It is, it is for the purpose of mission, getting the gospel out, that we're concerned about getting it right, because everything hinges on it. All right, let's uh, close in prayer. Father, thank you that you've given us your sure word, a gospel that is complete and to which we can add nothing. Thank you that it is uh, a saving revelation of your, your purposes and your accomplishments, your achievements in your Son that we can cling to for all of our hope and security uh, and a message worthy of getting out to our neighbors Message indeed even worth dying for uh, if that's what it comes to. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill. Your truth abideth still. Your kingdom is forever. Christ's name. Amen.